Welcome to the God in the Ordinary podcast, an interview show for believers looking for encouragement in how to reveal God in their everyday. Your host, singer-songwriter Sharon Tedford. My guest today began his career in advertising but now works with a ministry founded by the late theologian John Stott. He focuses on equipping Christians to be fruitful on their front line and to live whole life discipleship. My guest, LICC mission champion Mark Green. Mark, I'm always so excited to have a new guest, but I have to tell our listeners that I was over the moon when you agreed to come and talk to us because your teaching and your book have had such a strong influence on me, not just recently, but over the years. So thank you so much for coming today. How are you? I'm very well. I've got to say I was pretty over the moon to be invited when I discovered uh, God in the ordinary. My heart leapt within me, not quite like John the Baptist in uh, Elizabeth's womb, but something like that to discover a group of people so concerned about ordinary life and God in ordinary life. So mutual enthusiasm right there. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good kind of enthusiasm to have. Otherwise, I think it's called <laughs> stalking. <laughs> Mark, tell us whereabouts in the world you are. I'm in a place called Northwood um, in Middlesex, which is on the sort of northwestish edge of London for people flying in from Dallas to Heathrow. It's about uh, 10 miles from Heathrow and it's just south of a place called Watford. OK, so do you admit to following Watford football team or do you keep quiet about that? I do keep somewhat quiet about it because it's it's not my team. Uh, it's my second team. Um, my favourite team is a team called Tottenham Hotspur Spurs, who cavalier attacking creative team. <laughs> I think we'll just agree to disagree on that particular thing. I'm from the South Coast, so Southampton is my follow. Uh, very good. So Mark, here at God in the Ordinary, we ask our guests to share with us a reflection on Isaiah 61, because that passage is so important to us. It helps us to see how God wants us to reach out to the people around us. Would you mind please sharing with us your reflection? Isaiah 61 has a special significance for me this week, particularly the section where God promises that those who were in mourning will rejoice. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Seven days ago on the 2nd of March 2021, one of the men I admired most in the world died. His name was Peter Cottrell. He was the principal of the London School of Theology where I studied and then worked. Before Peter became principal, the college had been in such financial difficulty that they thought about leaving London. But Peter was convinced that God wanted the college to stay. So we came up with a plan and the board said, give it a go. Soon after that, Peter and I went out into the college grounds with a spade, a camera and a sapling oak. Peter started digging the hole. I took the photograph. It was an act of trust in God's leading. We were planting ourselves here anew. But it was also a statement about the kind of people we were hoping the college would form, oaks of righteousness, men and women who would go into all kinds of jobs, yes, into church paid work, yes, into overseas mission, but also into government and business and health and education and parenting and sport and music, oaks of righteousness in every context. It's there in Isaiah's vision. It's not about raising up an elite cadre of leaders, and about raising up a whole people with deep roots in God, people who will stand faithful and true and live well for him over the long term. They will be people, 
as the text says, who will restore the places long devastated, who will renew cities. Don't both our nations need that? Those people will be called priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. It's a vision of righteousness lived out in all of life, not only on the seventh day, but on the other six too. That was Peter Cottrell's vision, raising up whole life righteous disciples. The other reason why this passage is so significant to me is because Peter himself was an oak of righteousness, a leader of extraordinary godliness, integrity, depth, faith, creativity, and wisdom. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And we all felt grateful to God, privileged really, to witness it. I still do. Thanks for that, Mark. I'm sorry for your loss. You spoke so beautifully about Peter and his whole life righteousness. Could you talk to us a bit about what that phrase means, whole life righteousness? I think one of the great beauties of the Christian life is that um, Jesus does invite us to walk with him in all of our lives. And when we come into relationship with him, he says we are a new creation. So we're, we're qualitatively different people. And within that new creation, the spirit comes to live. And the spirit doesn't sort of only live in us, if you like, when we're in church or when we're in a home group or a cell group or something like that, or when we're in the church hall or when we're focused on singing to the Lord or praying to the Lord. The spirit is always in us. So the spirit doesn't get to the supermarket door or to the office door or to the school gate and go, see you tomorrow at communion or see you in the house group tonight or something like that. He's always in us. And so we don't live a compartmentalized life. We have the opportunity to walk with Jesus all of the time and to grow in consciousness of that and to look for him working in our lives and working in those around us all of the time. So whole life is in a sense the easy bit, being righteousness in all of life. But the idea that every context is a context where we can live out what it means to be faithful and true to him in how we're holding ourselves in any moment, what we're saying in any moment, what we're doing in any moment. That's true. You spoke really beautifully about Peter's righteousness. It makes me want to be like him. But, you know, I feel more like a sapling oak, as you said, than an oak of righteousness sometimes. So how do I start living a whole life of righteousness? What would be the first steps that I could take? I think the lady doth protest too much. Um, but I suspect uh, that the first step you've definitely already taken, which is to recognize that all of your life is significant to God. And that actually is quite a difficult step to take partly because of, you know, the church culture really across the denominations that we've had for hundreds of years, which has tended to make us believe that the things we do in the church context are much, much more significant to God than the things we do outside. And even within the things outside, there are sort of hierarchy within those that actually what really counts to God might be either having an evangelistic conversation with somebody, which of course is important, or doing some kind of direct social action, reaching out to the poor. And again, that's very, very important to God. And it's very much part of Isaiah 61, as you know. Uh, but the problem with that is, on an average day, if you're working in a factory or working in an office, you're not going to get a lot of opportunities to 
share the gospel directly with somebody in an average day. And in an average day, if you're in an office or a factory out in the fields, you're not necessarily going to have too many opportunities to directly bless the poor. So it's very easy to believe if those you think are the key indicators of the godly life, the key things that God wants us to be about, to believe, well, my life is insignificant. I've, I've really got uh, nothing to offer. I'm just a second class citizen. So I think the first thing is to actually believe what the Bible says about this, that whatever you do, you can do unto the Lord. And that, you know, he's given us a mandate, if you like, to to go out into the world and to look after it, to work it, uh, to steward it, to work so that we produce goods and services, uh, whether that's for money or not, that bless others and contribute to the common good for God's glory. I think you can do that every day in all kinds of ways. So I think the first thing is to really believe what it says. Whatever you do, you can do as unto the Lord and that it is really important to him. And once you realize it's really important to him, well, then why not involve him? He wants to be involved. He's not indifferent. He, he wants to get involved with things. And that's what people begin to see. And so that would be my first step. And a second is like unto it. <laughs> that's a really great, important first step. Actually, something that we can all do is believe that what Jesus says is true. I think there's something that sometimes we forget, you know, that what we hear him say to us in the Bible, what he says about us, what he says about himself is true and we need to believe that and walk in it. So are you saying that if I do good work in the power of the Holy Spirit, that can be fruitful for the kingdom? Yes, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, in, in a sense, um, what Jesus says, or rather what Paul says, is to slaves who, you know, we're doing, if you like, all kinds of work in, in the first century world, all kinds of work, not just chores and low-level building work or agricultural work and so on, but a whole range of tasks. He's, he's saying to them, whatever you do, you can do it unto the Lord. And not only can you do it unto the Lord, you can do it wholeheartedly because, you know, why would you do something wholeheartedly unless it was of significance to God, even if we don't feel it's very significant? But you're quite right. It's very hard to find a church, for example, a community where people actually believe that what, I say, a housewife or a household husband does is as significant as what, what a church leader does, or what a cleaner does is as significant as what a curate does, or what a barmaid might do is as significant as what a barrister might do. We have a kind of hierarchy around these things. So there's a culture that is against us in this. But of course, doing good work in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God is just one of the ways, I think, in which we can be fruitful for God, but it's a very significant one. Yeah, you've touched on it a little bit when you talked about whatever your job is, whether you're working in a factory or whether you're a stay-at-home dad or whether you're a doctor, that all of those things are important. But there's a lot of talk at the moment about philanthropic, social action. Do you think that those things are more worthy in the kingdom than, say, starting a small business? No, I definitely don't. I mean, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it, that within uh, many church circles, um, you are a hero if you seek to alleviate poverty but you're a zero if you prevent it in the first place. So if you start a small business and you create jobs for 20 people and therefore, say, impact 80 people in their families and maybe 160 more broadly, you know, you don't get much kudos for that. But if you spend two hours at a food bank or two hours helping latchkey kids or two hours with homeless people a week, well, then you're a hero because you've got involved in our program. But preventing poverty in the first place is really the goal. <laughs> That's really the goal. God wants to see shalom, wholeness. Alleviating poverty is absolutely critical to that. But giving people jobs, good jobs, you know, prevents it in the first place. And I think that's a critical thing to see. One needs both. 
Yes, and amen. We need both and. It's so true. I think that we in the church have done a little bit of a disservice to our people because of the way that we have, as you say, put jobs and roles in life in a hierarchy that Jesus never intended for them to be built in that way at all. We here at God in the Ordinary talk to Christians who are weary and kind of disillusioned about how on earth can I share the gospel? I'm not a, quote, missionary. I don't stand in the pulpit. I don't have a social media platform. How can I share the gospel? Do you think that normal, ordinary, everyday Christians can share the gospel? Yes. <laughs> I guess that's kind of the obvious answer. <laughs> and obviously, it happens all the time in a way. But I suppose it depends on what people hear when they hear that phrase. Does it mean that can I go into the canteen tomorrow morning and just sit down next to somebody and say, you know, uh, Jesus love you, did you know that? And, and would you like to hear more about it? Well, unless I'm uh, led by the Spirit to do that, and there are occasions when that is the case, people are led like that, that's unlikely. And I think, I suppose, you know, it's difficult to make generalizations because different church streams put different emphases and different sort of challenges before their people. But I think overall, I would say that we're often in a sense in too much of a hurry. One of the, the wonderful examples that is actually on, on the DVD of Fruitfulness on, on the front line is of a, of a youngish woman who starts out in a work in a doctor's surgery in the UK. And uh, she gets engaged during that time when she's working as one of the receptionists. She gets married, she has a child, and then very sadly, she's divorced. And this all happens over you know, five, six years or so. And all this time, she's a godly woman, she's praying for people around her, and not a great deal happens. And then in the sixth year, having developed relationships with people within the office group, she invites, I think it was, uh, six or seven people to come to a, a kind of alpha course. And they all come. And as I recall, and I, I ought to know this off by heart, but I don't remember, as I recall, I think five of them became Christians. Well, that's building relationship. That's somebody watching you going through happy times and hard times and seeing the difference Jesus makes. But throughout that time, she was intentional. So it's not always hugely quick. And I think the other thing about this is that for me, when we've been thinking about this with the people that we work with, we've tried to take away, if you like, the burdens that are sometimes put on people. You know, if you think about being a school kid or being a university student or being in a workplace or working on a school gate or being part of a, of a club, that sort of evangelism is usually ongoing evangelism. You're going to see those people quite often. So you've got an opportunity to develop a relationship and you may know quite a lot of people. So who does God want you to reach? Who is it? It may not be everybody. And what we've tried to encourage people to do, it's kind of obvious in a way, is to begin by asking God to show them one person. Is there somebody, Lord, in all the contacts that I have that you would like me to be concerned about for their salvation? That might mean that I just pray for them once a week for the next two years. It, it might mean something more, but is there somebody? And we find when we do that in workshops, for example, that you know about 60% of people get somebody and those who don't, we just say, well, choose someone for the purposes of the workshop. But if you know from the Lord that God is concerned for this person's salvation and you have a role in it, then of course that begins to build confidence. And I think for me, it's a lesson I learned from somebody in the persecuted church, uh, a North Korean woman, and the story goes that she, she was sent into one of the camps 
for her faith. And often when you hear these stories, um, I think we can be bullied by these sorts of stories into feeling, well, look, you know, here are our brothers and sisters and they're prepared to risk their lives for their faith. And you're not prepared to get up in the middle of a board meeting and say, you're all going to hell, repent now, get on your knees, you know. But how would they do evangelism? if they were in our context. Well, what happened in this context was the Lord said to this woman, I want you to share the gospel. And she said back to him, excuse me, Lord, uh, you do know that if I do this, I may get killed, which I think is an entirely reasonable response. It's a little bit like Ananias when God says, I want you to go to that, that guy, Saul, you know, the one who's killing people. And Ananias reminds God that this is the guy who's killing people who follow Jesus. And God says, he's going to be one of my people, so go. So Ananias goes. So this woman says this to God. So God, you know, are you sure? And the Lord says to her, I will show you who, and I will show you how. And I think asking God who and asking God how is a huge liberation. And then we have to go with it. It might be very small to begin with. And then we go with building the relationship, understanding the person, learning to talk to them about things that they're interested in from a Christian point of view, not just waiting to crowbar the gospel into a conversation. You know, the sort of thing like, um, oh, it's just a lovely day today, your colleague says, for example. And you, you reply, yes, it was just like this on the day I gave my life to Jesus. Would you like to hear about it? not necessarily the best tactic and it's a burden then we're just ticking a box rather than developing a relationship so can we do it yes we can and obviously it's different in different parts of the world i mean having been to dallas quite a few times been to the american south quite a few times you know you're still looking at 40 percent of people in dallas maybe not in austin but 40 percent of people in dallas probably going to church once a month or more well, in the UK, it's about 6%. So it's a very different atmosphere. And we all have to be sensitive to the context in which we're in. And yeah, thank you. We have people listening from all over the world. And so the context from which people are hearing you are all very different. But I want to take a moment and do something that's a little bit illegal in the podcast world. I'm going to ask you listeners to pause the recording. We're not supposed to do that because you might not come back. Here's what I want you to do before you pause. I want you to take up the challenge of what Mark has just said to you. I'd love for you to stop for a minute and just say to Jesus, who's the one? Who is the one that you want me to reach out to? And how do you want me to do that? So would you please press pause, go and ask Jesus, and then come back so that Gary, my co-producer, doesn't get cross with me for sending you away. So press pause, go and ask Jesus, who's the one? And how do you want me to share? You're listening to God in the Ordinary with me, Sharon Tedford, and my guest, Mark Green. Okay, so now I'm going to imagine that you press pause and I'm going to say, welcome back, because <laughs> you just came back. And now you have somebody in your mind who you're going to be able to share Jesus with. So, Mark, you talk a lot about the sacred secular divide, the SSD. Can you explain that a bit and talk about how that's impacting church and our young adults today? It's very easy to think of the Christian life uh, as an orange. That is that it's kind of divided into lots of segments, some of which are significant to God, you know, church, prayer meetings, social action, evangelism, those sorts of things. They're all significant to God and others that aren't significant to God, work, sport, the arts, entertainment, uh, sleep, rest, food and so on. But the Christian life is really a peach. It's not an orange, it's a peach. It's all one. And what the sacred-secular divide does to people is it makes them think that lots of bits of their lives are not significant to God. 
actually, vicars are really significant to God, pastors are really significant to God, overseas missionaries are significant to God, but plumbers and bricklayers and secretaries and clerks, well, they're not significant to God at all. And this is bunkum. It's just a heresy. It's a lie. But what it does is it makes people think that their lives are insignificant. And lots of their lives are insignificant. It makes them think that what I'm doing now doesn't matter to God when it does. Why that's particularly important to young people is because it actually is a distortion of the character of God and the nature of the gospel. Because with the sacred-secular divide, it's as if you've got a father, for example, a father who is only interested in your academic performance. So imagine you're 16 or 17 years old and your dad is only interested in how you're doing in maths, in economics, whatever language you might be studying in literature, because what really counts to your dad is your exam results. That's what counts, your performance, your academic performance. And your dad is not at all interested in the fact that you love, say, dancing or that you're very good at sport or that you are actually writing letters uh, on behalf of Amnesty International every week to secure the release of prisoners of conscience held in prisons around the world by um, oppressive governments or whatever. No, no, none of that matters. Nor does the fact that you love vanilla ice cream with peach sauce. That doesn't matter either. And so what the sacred secular divide does is it dehumanizes people. It reduces us to one or two aspects of what it means to be human. And so it's, it's a scandal against God's character and his nature and the world that he's created. It also suggests to people that Christianity is not interested in nine-tenths of their life. And as Dorothy Sayers, the great uh, Christian writer and thinker and apologist, said back in 1942, she said, why would anybody be interested in a religion that has no concern for nine-tenths of your life? Well, why would you? If it's just for Sunday, forget it. You know, I've got seven days a week. And the interesting thing is, in the West, at least at the moment, young people are just not up for a divided life. They want to live an authentic whole life. They're not up for being one person on Monday and another person on Sunday, or one person during the day and another person during the evening. They're concerned about living a significant life. This is not just religious people. People in general, they want to make a difference. They want to contribute to a better world. Well, if Christianity is positioned to them as just, if you like, an evenings and weekend thing where what you're really being called to do is to become a volunteer in somebody else's ministry or somebody else's cause. Well, no, but that's not what Christianity is at all. Jesus calls us all and sends us all out. So when you have the sacred secular divide, you don't know that. But when you don't have the sacred secular divide, you have a Jesus who's for whom, you know, the call to join him is not only a call to relationship with him minute by minute, second by second, for the whole of your life and for the whole of eternity, which is pretty fantastic. It's an invitation to join a movement to change the world. That's what it is. And you do it, if you like, office space by office space, task by task, house by house, home by home, conversation by conversation. Everything, therefore, becomes significant. That is a compelling offer for young people today. And that's not what we're offering them. And it seems to me that this is why it matters so much. What is the gospel we're offering people? Is it an invitation to join a movement to change the world, having given yourself to the one who created the world and seeks to renew it and restore it, and who will make you new and empower you to, to be part of his work in it? Or isn't it? Well, at the moment, it's not that. So it really, really matters. We have lost most of this generation because we haven't actually shared that whole life gospel. We've shared what Dorothy Sayers would have called a one-tenth gospel. Enough already. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just love your passion, Mark. It's so important for us to hear that. It's important that we take up this mantle as parents and friends of young adults and children and start reminding them that you're right. It isn't just a tiny part of our lives that God's interested in. It's all of our lives. It's He is present in the ordinary everyday moments that he reveals himself to us in those and we can reveal him to others through the way that we live and work and exist. So yeah, I'm over here cheering, waving pom-poms and stuff in a particularly <laughs> Texan kind of way. Mark, I believe that a few years ago you did some really interesting work talking about church with Graham Kendrick, who is a renowned British Christian songwriter. He wrote the song Shine, Jesus Shine, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. What did you find out about the songs Christians often sing in church? I'm a songwriter, and this is very interesting to me. Graham actually asked me to um, come and talk to a songwriter's collective which he had been working with a number of singer-songwriters of worship music uh, for many years. And uh, he asked me to look at the British songbook. So I actually read about 800 um, hymns and choruses that had been uh, recently published at that particular moment. And what I was looking for was, what were the songs about? How many of them were about whole life? How many of them were about living life out in the world, how many of them might be about work, how many of them might be about discipleship in the everyday, God in the ordinary, and so on. Then he asked me to report back. And so I did this presentation. And it's not going to surprise you to know that there were very remarkably few. Curiously, as a result of that consultation, a number of uh, those um, uh, songwriters started to write some songs. Indeed, Keith and Christian Getty did a whole album, Songs for Everyday Life, that came out of that time. And there's been a beginning uh, in the UK of people grasping the notion of who is this God we worship? He is the God of the everyday. So, yeah, that was that's what we did together. Well, thanks for that. I think that's really important work. Yes, people should listen to Keith and Kristen Getty and also an another organisation called Engage Worship in the UK, actually from London School of Theology. You might have met them. I don't know. Um, Mark, before you turned to encouraging us in the world to be fruitful on the front line, you were fruitful in advertising. <laughs> Do you think there were things in that world when you were working in the world of advertising that led you to start thinking about how your workplace could be your place of ministry? Well, I don't know if it was necessarily to do with advertising. I mean, I think in the providence of God, you know, I'd moved from London to New York to work in advertising there. And it's an interesting thing. I was being discipled at the time by a lawyer who's in, in the church who had been very influenced by the navigators. You know, one of the things was to think about, you know, sharing your faith with your colleagues and so on and so forth, and or with people that you knew. And because I was new to New York, I, I didn't know that many people you know, at that particular stage outside my workplace. So it just seemed obvious that this was my place uh, where I would think about what did the gospel mean and how to share it. And then for some reason, um, somebody asked me to do a little session on workplace ministry. And I bought a book called The Christian Employee, which apart from the first chapter, an absolutely excellent book by a man called Robin Mattox. And I suppose it, uh, that opened my eyes to a much richer vision of what it could be to work in that place. And then I began to teach adult Sunday school in the church, which is one of the great things that America has to offer. And I wish we did it in the UK, you know, 45 minutes uh, before the service in my particular church. We had three classes of 25 people each and, you know, which is about half the church coming, if you like. And they asked me to do on workplace ministry. And I, and I started to do that. 
every week after the first week, or uh, we got people to share what was what they saw God doing in their workplace. These weren't all bankers or you know high flying as as they were called yuppies at the time. It's just a, an ordinary church with a whole variety of people in it. And by the third week, we had to put a cap on how how many minutes we'd spent of our 45, 50 minutes sharing because there were so many stories. And I realized at that time that God could work through anyone in any context and that he wanted to. And that once people's eyes were opened to the range of ways, which was really important, the range of ways that they could be fruitful for God in that context. Oh, my goodness, stories just poured out of people and the confidence grew and and so on. I mean, there were things I learned specifically in advertising, but I think it was more that I was being discipled at the time and that was the place I was in. You know, there was a particular social dynamic. I didn't have loads of other friends to go and share with. I think that's really important what you just said then, that you were being discipled at the time and it was out of that discipleship that this huge and important ministry that you do has grown. That because somebody one-to-one, like we said earlier, somebody spotted you as a one, somebody was discipling you, that you could hear God calling you into something slightly different, a step aside, using the gifts he'd already given you and moving you into something else. So that just doubles down on your meet the one, talk to the one, ask the Lord to show you who the one is, because it could be a start of a conversation about Jesus. It could be a continuing conversation about Jesus. That's so important. I've already said this once, but I'm going to say it again. My favourite book that I read last year was your excellent, excellent, can't recommend it highly enough, Fruitfulness on the Frontline, Making a Difference Where You Are. So, so great. I couldn't put it down and I drove my husband nuts because I would be cheering at the book, but I wouldn't read him the sections because he's got to read it in context. He's reading it right now. So in it, you outline the M6 model. Could you just briefly tell us what the M6 model is, please, Mark? Yes, the M6 or the six M's, whichever way you like it, is is a way of uh, helping us understand, you know, six ways in which we can be fruitful for Christ. And what we noticed was that lots and lots of Christians are fruitful for Christ. They just don't know it. And we noticed this spectacularly when we were working with some 20-somethings in, in Scotland. It was 10 people uh, who'd been handpicked by a group of churches to work with us, as it happens primarily about work. And one was a housewife, one was a graphic designer, one was a teacher, one was a head teacher, uh, one was running a football club, one was a doctor, one was a business person, so on and so forth, so a whole variety of people. And uh, we thought they were doing fantastic things, but they just didn't. And the reason they didn't was because they thought the only thing that mattered to God was direct social action and evangelism. And we thought, well, that's just not true. So we came up with these six M's. And what they are is, and then I'll give you just one example, if I may. The first one is modelling godly character. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You get to do that every day. And if you didn't lose your temper today, well, praise the Lord. You know, that's good. If you've seen a little bit of self-restraint, praise the Lord. That's good. That's fruitfulness. It says it. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And then we've talked about it, making good work in the power of spirits, the glory of God. You do that. It pleases the Lord. He's going to give you an inheritance for it in heaven, if you like. And then ministering grace and love, which can be very simple. It can be, you know, giving somebody a Snickers bar or a Kit Kat or going and getting a cup of coffee or just talking to them. Moulding culture, making a difference to the way things are done around here, which could just be putting a tea light on the table or bringing donuts once a week into the office. It can be tiny things and it can be big things too. Being a mouthpiece for truth and justice, which sounds very grand, doesn't it? A mouthpiece for truth and justice as if we're on the streets protesting and so on. But actually being a mouthpiece for truth and justice can just be snuffing out gossip at the school gate. It can be making sure that someone gets the credit for what they did and somebody who didn't do it doesn't get the credit or doesn't get the blame for something that they didn't do. 
And then, of course, there's being a messenger for the gospel, the opportunity to talk about the difference Jesus makes in your life. So six M's, it's kind of a holistic idea. So let me just give you one example of what it looks like, for example, for a barista. What might it look like for somebody whose job is to serve people coffee every day? A barista almost certainly gets to model godly character every day by displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. When, if you like, the early morning queue is stretching outside the shop. Patience with a customer who just can't decide whether they want a macchiato or a double shot skinny latte with chocolate sprinkles and a dash of hazelnut syrup. Come on, there's a huge queue. But no, a barista gets to make good work, (laughs) make good coffee, make sure that the shot of, of espresso, the shot of coffee does indeed get poured into the steamed milk in under 10 seconds. Because if it's not done in under 10 seconds, then the chemistry changes because it's not hot enough and so on. Barista gets to minister love and grace. Well, you can't have a conversation with everybody when the, when it's busy, but you discern, you you know, you discern. Who, do, who am I going to take an extra 20 seconds with? Which customer? Who, who looks like they need it? Who's the person not having a great day? Or deliberately to pause to talk to someone as, as you clear a table. And a barista gets to definitely mould the culture of a coffee shop, make it a special place to be, make it that bit more welcoming. We all know the difference that one person can make to your day if they're nice to you in retail. Fantastic. And a barista gets to be a mouthpiece for truth and justice. Make sure, you know, that the rotors are fair. Spots that actually somebody's done three Sundays in a row. Well, that's not fair. And even though I'd rather never work on a Sunday, it's just not fair. I'm going to I'm going to volunteer. And a barista also gets to be a messenger of the gospel to talk a bit about difference Jesus makes in their life with a colleague, perhaps, or maybe with a customer on a break. And the interesting thing about those six M's is that every day, pretty much everybody gets to do five of them. Every day we get to model godly character in some way. Every day we get to do good work. It might be just making our own bed, but we get to do good work. Every day we get to minister grace and love. We can text someone, we can call them up on Zoom, we can write them a letter. There's all kinds of things we do. Every day we get to minister grace and love. Every day we either contribute to making the culture, the way things are done around us, a little bit better or a little bit worse. Every day we get to be a mouthpiece for truth and justice, sometimes by just telling the truth. That's five out of six every day. And some days, praise the Lord, we also get to share something directly. But here's the thing about the six M's, which I didn't realize when we when we wrote it, really, was that once you realize, once you go over your day, and this is what we encourage people to do. So where have you seen God at work in you in the last week, in the last day? Once you start going over your day, you realize loads of people start thinking, goodness me, God's been at work in my life. And what does that mean? That means I have a testimony. I used to lose my temper about this sort of thing. I don't anymore. The Lord has changed me. I used to do this awful chore without any joy, but now I do it to God. The Lord has changed me. I have a testimony. I have a testimony that Jesus lives in and through me every day. So my testimony now, our testimonies, loads of people's testimonies are not just about how we became a Christian last week or last year or last century in my case. They're about how God is active in our lives. And the other thing that happens, did we know this would happen? You know, when we wrote the stuff and developed it and tested it. No, it's of course that people grow in confidence as a result because God's at work in my life. Well, if he's in work in that bit of my life, maybe he could be work over there. So actually it all works beautifully together, not to create a kind of positive thinking, but actually to make people actually aware of how God is at work. And then of course, how he might be. Lord, help me, show me how I can shape this culture to make it more like the kind of place you want it to be. Help me, Lord, do this difficult task and do it well for the people that we're trying to serve and so on.
Yes, thank you so much. I hope that that will encourage all of you. It's always astonishing to me how many people I meet who say to me, oh, I love your podcast, but I don't really think I do anything. I don't reveal God in my ordinary everyday life. I can't. And then we get into a conversation. And just as you have said, we can see that actually Jesus is active in their lives. So our aim here at God in the Ordinary is not to make you feel small or to shame you. In fact, it's to call you up and to say, look what Jesus is already doing in your life. As Mark has just so eloquently said, Jesus is already active when we allow him to be. And the great thing that we can do at the end of our day is to stop, take a look, and again, ask Jesus, where have you been active in my life? What have you been doing? Then we're going to see that actually we are being fruitful for Christ. Sometimes we just don't know it. And isn't that just a great plan of Satan to try and stop us from knowing how God is using us? Because if you belong to Jesus and you're being intentional, then he is using you. Amen. Mark, it's been really great to have you here. I can't encourage people enough to go find you and listen to your teaching and read your book, Fruitfulness on the Frontline. If people do want to find you on the internet or maybe buy snail mail, how can they do that? Well, I suppose the easiest way is to go to the LICC uh, website. That's licc.org.uk, licc.org.uk. And that, you know, has uh, all kinds of ways to get in contact. So through mail at and then you just pop in attention mark green and that would be really great to hear from people, great to hear stories. We collect lots and lots of stories and retell them. So you'll find quite a lot of stories of how God has been working people's lives on, on the website, but we'd be delighted to hear from you. And we send out a few things like other people do. Once a week, we send out an email about the Bible and living out the Bible day by day. On a Monday and on Fridays, we send out a, a post about something that's going on in culture and reflect on it from a biblical perspective. But uh, do have a look, www.licc.org.uk. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And uh, yeah, thank you. Shalom to you all. Thank you so much for joining us. LICC stands for London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And that's where Mark does his daily grind. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Green, it's been an intense pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking time and for setting us on fire. God bless you and shalom to you, brother. Shalom to you, Sharon. Shalom indeed. You've been listening to God in the Ordinary, presented by me, Sharon Tedford. My guest today was Mark Green, mission champion for the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find out more at licc.org.uk. That's licc.org.uk. For more information and show notes, go to 61-things.com. Producer is Gary Dell, and God in the Ordinary is a Wise Word Radio 61 Things co-production.